difference a few years makes, isn't it true? Just a few years ago, a man named Governor Andrew Cuomo Il Duce, as we affectionately call him here on the NPO podcast, was out and about criticizing rather strenuously Judge Brett Kavanaugh and criticizing President Trump even more for nominating Judge Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court in the wake of allegations that emerged in the 11th hour of his confirmation hearing that he was a sexual predator. This allegation coming from one Christine Blasey Ford from 30 years prior. She couldn't remember when it happened. She couldn't remember where it happened. She couldn't specifically remember everyone that was there, what house, what day. But she knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was Brett Kavanaugh that had done this to her. Of course, it was all a pack of lies manufactured by the Democratic Party in an attempt to derail Justice Kavanaugh's nomination. And now, three short years later, one of the most vociferous accusers, or critics, I should say, Il Duce himself, Andrew Cuomo, comes under the gun for the same sort of sexual harassment, except in in Governor Cuomo's case, it's not simply one woman who can't remember anything. It's five women who seem to be able to remember everything. What a difference a few years can make. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so very easily in your native app store. So if you're an iTunes user, that would be the iTunes store. If you're an Android user, the Google Play Store. And simply search for the NPO podcast. Hit subscribe, and you'll be notified whenever a new episode of the show is uploaded. You'll also be able to leave reviews and make comments there. And we please do ask that you make comments and leave reviews. The more positive reviews we get, the faster the show will be discovered in search results when people search those Play Stores and the faster the show will grow and we'll be able to bring you more information. If for some reason you choose not to use your native podcast aggregator app but want something aftermarket that's a little better, download the Podbean app. It's free, and it's put out by our hosting service, podbean.com. Podbean.com is one of the bigger hosting services out there. You can subscribe just as easily, and you'll be able to leave comments and reviews. So we please ask you to do that. So Andrew Cuomo now, he refused adamantly to resign from office, although calls are mounting for him to do so, uh, when it was just three. Over the weekend, it became four and then five. Two former aides in his administration resigned. And now he's steadfastly refusing to resign, reminding everyone of due process. There has to be due process. Please wait until all the evidence is in, is now the, the tone of his, um, of his speech. Uh, also, talking about how um, he wasn't elected by politicians, but he was elected by the people of the state of New York, and so wait till all of the allegations are in. And now he knows, this man of the world, this governor, now, after five women have accused him of sexual assault, now he just now realizes that his conduct was wrong, and that he's deeply sorry for it and apologizes for it. Somehow, I don't think that's going to cut it. And somehow, I don't think these five women 
are the only women that are going to come forward are the only women that have been harassed by Governor Cuomo. But look how different Governor Cuomo was a few years ago when it was Kavanaugh, a Republican, a nominee for the Supreme Court, nominated for that court by Trump. How different his tone was. President Trump, you said you would watch the hearings today. This is Governor Cuomo's words. I believe Dr. Ford's testimony is very compelling. Only a political skeptic could find a reason to disbelieve her. What is her possible motive to lie? Well, I'll tell you, Governor Cuomo, her entire social media showed just what a leftist, an ultra-leftist and lunatic and party animal she was. It was all purged, all her social media accounts, purged, cleansed prior to this. She is a Democrat operative. She is an out-and-out leftist. And she put herself out there to try and derail and sully the reputation of a good man. Unfortunately, I don't think as highly of Brett Kavanaugh today as I once did, but it had nothing to do with his character regarding sexual harassment. I feel just as badly about Amy Coney Barrett as I do Judge Kavanaugh in that neither of them, despite incredible support from President Trump, could find it in their moral fiber to stand up for what was right and stand up for the American people with the tremendous fraud and theft we had in the 2020 election. But as it regards the moral character of Justice Kavanaugh, he's as moral and upstanding and forthright as anyone who has ever served on the court. He didn't deserve what happened to him. Governor Cuomo, on the other hand, deserves everything that's happening to him. Conceited, arrogant piece of garbage, a condescending swine. He has now abused and harassed five women. And he goes on. This again from three years ago. In any event, I fear this will just increase the political polarization. Whatever happens, your decision will be tainted for history and with it the credibility of the Supreme Court. Well, as I said, the credibility of the Supreme Court has already been tainted by they're not... willing to hear the cases. Quote, here is one basic fact that badly hurts Judge Kavanaugh. Why won't he take a polygraph? Dr. Ford did. If he does not take a polygraph test, it is the ultimate, he said. It is the ultimate, he said, she said. It is the one powerful piece of evidence that seriously damages his credibility and the credibility of his Republican supporters, including yourself. You can and should ask him to take the test. If he refuses, you should pull the appointment. It will show at least a modicum of fairness on your part. If you do not insist that Judge Kavanaugh take a polygraph, it will be further evidence that you are putting political motivation over your constitutional obligation. Do not aid and abet a lie. Demand a polygraph. Well, Duce, having set the standard, I don't expect you to be any less the gentleman. So we'll apply your own inexorable standard to yourself. It's time for you to take a polygraph, Governor. And if you don't, it's the ultimate he said, she said. It damages your credibility beyond all reason. It should show at least a modicum of fairness on your part, don't you think, if you take the test? Otherwise, it'll be further evidence of your putting political survival and motivation over your constitutional obligation to serve the voters. 
After all, I'm sure you would agree. The voters don't deserve to be represented by a sexual deviant and lecherous swine, like someone who sexually abuses five women, asks women to play strip poker with them, and then asks a sexual assault victim if she's still able to enjoy sex with men. What sort of piece of garbage does that? Would you like it if someone did it to your daughter? Your niece? Your sister? I think not. I think it's time for you to take the polygraph. And if you won't, it's time for you to step down. In case you haven't noted, calls for your resignation are growing, and it's not from Republican ranks. It's from your own party. Andrea Stewart-Cousins, the Senate Majority Leader in the state of New York, has said it's time for you to go. But I find all of this very convenient, the timing of it. I mean, obviously, it's reprehensible that someone would engage in this sort of conduct, but this pales in comparison to being criminally responsible for 1,500 deaths. And make no mistake, Il Duce, Benito Cuomo, is responsible for 15,000 dead New Yorkers. It was his narrow-minded, idiotic policy, mandating nursing homes, facilities that are populated typically by elderly, vulnerable, health-compromised individuals, those at most risk from COVID-19, and mandated them to accept COVID-19 patients if they had a bed available. That caused a contagion to enter all these nursing homes and resulted in all these deaths. And there's no other way to slice it. Now, the, ju- the governor has lied, saying that he's only following federal guidelines, but no one can find these federal guidelines that he was following. In fact, the federal guidelines that he points to doesn't say what he says he says. So Governor Cuomo has more than overstayed his welcome. The one good thing to come of all this is that he will never be the Attorney General of United States. That chance was one, went out the window with that. Now they're looking to push Merrick Garland. And it also looks like only a fool with all this baggage would attempt to run for a fourth term. It seems what Il Duce is trying to do is get out of it gracefully and hopefully be able to run, uh, or I should say finish, the duration of his term and then claim that um, personal problems, reasons, health of his mother, etc., etc., require him to tend to his private life. He regrets he can no longer serve and will have to go. I think that would be a terrible thing for a man who's caused so much damage to this state fiscally, socially, legally, and now medically with the deaths that he caused with his ill-fated policies if he were allowed to leave in anything other than total disgrace. So I urge you all to call your state senators, your state assemblymen, your U.S. senators, your U.S. US congressmen, congresswomen, and make clear your sentiment that you want the governor to resign. It's past time to do so. Now we have a few more little tidbits of information. As you know, the Senate passed a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. It's headed for Sleepy Joe's desk. But it should come as no surprise to anyone that blue states get much more money than red states. Talk about people being singled out. Wasn't it the Democrats that were saying that the, (coughs) excuse me, the Trump 
tax cuts were designed to penalize the blue states because they limited the amount of state tax you could deduct from your federal income tax return? And why was that so unfair? Why should the federal government subsidize the states? Why should the federal government take less tax from you than they do from people in Kentucky or Florida where there is no state tax, simply because your state wants to engage in redistribution of wealth in the welfare system? If you really believe in those policies, if you really believe that your state is spending wisely, then you should pay the freight, not ask other people to pay it for you. But here in this COVID relief bill, $350 billion is being set aside for states and local government. This is reported by Trish Reagan. That's primarily because the criteria used to determine how much a state receives is not based on population. That's how the blue states are getting more, but rather how many people are out of work. So a state like New York gets far more money than the state of Florida, even though the state of Florida has far more people. New York is set to receive $23.5 billion to help Il Duce bail out the Big Apple from what is essentially his uh, misguided fiscal policies prior to the pandemic and his anemic and ill-fated response during the pandemic. Florida will receive only $17.5 billion. So because Cuomo did a shittier job, he gets to get more money. Because DeSantis did a better job, he gets less money, even though he has more people. So go just chew on that for a while. New York's unemployment rate in December was 8.2% compared to Florida's 6.1%. That's all because of gubernatorial leadership or the lack thereof. Now, California, the biggest winner of all. $42.3 $42.3 billion, because it's a very high-populated state. Now, this is all on top of the $1,400 stimulus checks that are being sent to every American. Well, that's a little much, don't you think? I certainly do. I think it's quite a bit. But there is still more. There's a lot going on on the Hill. And Trump, ever since he spoke at the CPAC, has been very, very busy. Now, as you know, I've discussed on this show, what is the way forward? How can we ever hope to win an election again if these laws are not reversed in these six swing states? Worse, the Congress is trying to pass H.R. 1. H.R. 1 is a bill whereby all of the chicanery that was engaged in those six states would be federally mandated for all 50 states. In other words, states would no longer remain predominant in their fate when it comes to elections. Election law has always been left up to the state. Some states allow convicted felons to vote after they've been off probation or supervised release. Some allow them to vote as soon as they're out of prison. Others ban them from voting for life unless they receive relief from civil disabilities from their respective state governors. All that would go by the wayside. People in prison would be allowed to vote, which is interesting because if you're in prison and you're in a given state, the chances are you're not even from that state. You're from some other state. Now, this won't extend, the prisoner thing won't extend to the states. It'll only extend to the federal prison population, the U.S. Bureau of Prisons, but that's still a substantial number of people. Sickness here going on. Further, 
people will be automatically registered to vote. You'd have to affirmatively opt out of voter registration if you didn't want to vote. You can vote by mail. You can register online. You won't need any identification. You'll still need identification when you want to go to buy a six-pack of Budweiser, but you won't need any to vote for the next president of the United States or your federal congressional representatives. It's very sad. You need identification for so many things. You need identification to fly. You need identification for a host of things, but not to vote for the leader of the free world? Doesn't make sense. But it's not supposed to, because the Democrats are doing this. And the big one I love is they don't get enough money. It isn't enough that they get a lifetime pension if they only serve one two-year term as a congressman or congresswoman, or six years as a senator. No other job I know gives you vested pension rights after two years. But now they want to be able to allow them to withdraw from their campaign contributions and just keep it as salary. Politicians have been figuring out ways or trying to figure out ways to do that for years. And now they're just going to give it to themselves. And these things never go away. How much more difficult is it going to be to fix it? Well, we have to hope that a couple of Democrats or one or two defect and don't assent to this because it's contemptible. It's actually beneath contempt. But how do we fight? Well, I was originally in favor of a third party. Now, most third parties only go from presidential, and that's it. There's never been a successful third party that, or an attempt at a successful third party that involved creating a top-to-bottom third party where they had candidates at the federal, state, and local level. Just presidential. Ross Perot, for instance. But to do that would require a monumental effort, and it might require many years. It may require a decade or more. I think Trump feels we don't have that much time. So Trump is doing something very ingenious. Rather than try and create a third party to displace the Republican Party, he's going to take over the Republican Party. For the last two weeks, Donald Trump has been laying the foundation for exerting financial leverage over the Republican Party apparatus. This from the Epic Times. By supporting, by instructing rather supporters to donate solely to his campaign website and his political action committee, while simultaneously demanding that the Republican National Committee and its Congressional Chamber affiliates stop using his name and likeness to raise funds. See, the GOP is very interesting. They're trying to use, they know that Trump is very popular in the party, the party is his, so they're trying to raise money in his name, but still play the same old game. Trump is saying, no, no, no. You want money based on my name? It's going to have to be raised through me, and I'll decide which candidates get it. The ones who want to make America great again are in favor of term limits and against all this nonsense we've just been discussing for the past 10 minutes. Those are the ones I'll support. Those are the ones I'll give the money to. All the rest of you, the ones who had, didn't have the gall or the, or the balls to investigate the stolen election, didn't have the intestinal fortitude to stand up, you're not getting supported. You're going to be primaried. The strategism is all but sure, it says, to split a substantial chunk of donations from the GOP and allow Trump to divert money from the RNC that would otherwise end up bankrolling the campaigns of the Republicans he is looking to oust. 
Given the president's immense popularity among Republican voters, the RNC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and the National Republican Congressional Committee faced the the dire prospect of raising funds with the handicap of being unable to use the name of the man who reigns supreme over the Republican Party due to his ability to energize the base and pull in a mass of small donors. He could cripple them doing this. They will have to rely on larger donors that cannot give unlimited sums of money, so says Rich Barris, director of the Big Data Poll. So that's what's going on. Trump is no one's fool. He didn't become a billionaire by being a fool and not being smart. And strangling off the money and controlling the money is the way you control politicians. Politicians will do anything to prostitute themselves for money. Politicians' number one objective is to be elected. His second most important objective is to be reelected. The only way to do that in this day and age is to outspend your opponent. You control the purse, you control them. This simple truism is not lost on Trump. So that's a reason to be hopeful that he's exerting considerable leverage with this move. Now, I had to go back and mention one thing. You know, Dr. Seuss has come under fire lately. They want to take a few of his books off the shelf saying there's racial overtones. Uh, I disagree with that. Dr. Seuss is probably about as innocuous as you can get. But if you're looking to pull Dr. Seuss off the shelf, all you people who think that's a a good thing to do, I just throw this out there. Don't you think it's time that uh, Governor Cuomo's book come off the shelf and maybe he returns his Emmy? Just saying. Now, Texas and Louisiana have opened up. Texas, one of the biggest states in the union, very successful state, no income tax, and they managed to run the state just fine. Infrastructure doesn't seem to be falling apart. I drive home in New York, it feels like I'm driving off-road when I drive my truck. Cobble, stones apparently almost, the blacktop is ripped apart every winter, the FDR drive gets all ripped apart, and the blacktop gets ripped apart on the side streets. And we have some of the highest taxes in the country. Florida and Texas, no taxes. Everything's intact. Governors, Biden has called Neanderthals. The governors in Texas and Louisiana, Biden has called Neanderthals for opening up their states and removing mask mandates. Now, does anybody want to hazard a guess as to what the media would say if Trump had called people Neanderthals for doing something he disagreed with? Would they be supporting it like they are with Biden? Or would they be calling him a xenophobe, a divisive personality, a hate monger, a white supremacist? You know the drill. But that's the state of it, folks, on this Monday, March the 8th. That's the state of it with the COVID-19 bill. That's the state of it with Trump and his battle with the GOP. And that's the state of the benighted governor of the state of New York, Il Duce himself, Governor Benito Cuomo. March the 8th, a very special day for me, perhaps for you as well, for those of you old enough to remember my generation. I was in the sixth grade when it happened. March the 8th, 1971, a day which will live forever in sports history 
and marked the first in a trilogy of perhaps the best heavyweight fights ever fought. On that day, two undefeated champions met in Madison Square Garden, perhaps the most storied ring in all of boxing history, to fight for the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Joe Frazier was the current champion when they entered the ring that night. This, a consequence of a tournament, an elimination tournament, to determine who would be the heavyweight champion following the stripping of that title from the formerly known Cassius Clay to the newly known Muhammad Ali on the part of the boxing commissions. They revoked his license in all 50 states for refusing induction into the armed forces. The battle would wage in the courts for years. The best years of Muhammad Ali's life in terms of his athletic potential were stolen from him. But after three and a half years, the Supreme Court reversed the decision nine to nothing. Ali was given his freedom. All criminal charges were dropped. And he finally got his license back. In October of 1970, he had a quick fight against Jerry Quarry. He got lucky, he got past him in three rounds. Didn't have much time to train. Before he knew it, he was scheduled to fight Oscar Bonavina, the Argentine bull, in 1970 in the garden. No one had ever stopped Oscar Bonavina. Ali became the first and only man to do it. He didn't look particularly great doing it. Took a brutal body re- beating. Almost got knocked out himself in the ninth round, the, ni- the round that he predicted he would stop Bonavina in. But in the 15th round, which was unusual in itself since it was a non-title fight, Ali dropped Bonavina with a left hook. The three-knockdown rule being in effect, Ali dropped him twice more and became the first and only man to ever stop Oscar Bonavina. Oscar Bonavina himself had dropped Frazier twice in their fight. And Frazier was a tough piece of work. But Ali took a brutal body beating for 15 rounds during that fight. And before he'd even recovered from it, he was scheduled to train and fight Joe Frazier for the undisputed heavyweight title on March 8th, 1971. <clears throat> so great was his hunger to regain the title that he felt was wrongfully taken from him. He probably would have been better advised to get a few more tune-up fights and wait a little longer because Frazier was at his zenith at that time. And so the two entered the ring. Ali started out fast, as he always did, and he was ahead for the first three rounds. But late in the third round, Frazier got to him, got to him with a left hook that hurt him. From the fourth round on, Frazier rolled on like a juggernaut, dismaying Ali for not falling after the shelling that Ali had given him in the first three rounds. Ali began to tire and run out of gas, wondering if there was a second win coming, if he made a mistake, if the critics were right, had he gotten too old. He did come back in the ninth and 10th round, then he almost got dropped in the 11th. He was behind, but he was still putting up a good fight. But the candles were blown out in round 15 when the left hook that is known across history shows Frazier dropping the mighty Muhammad, who, despite 15 rounds of exhausting fighting, was up at the count of four and ready to go. He became defeated that night, and Joe Frazier was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. This would set in motion a chain of events 
which all of us became the beneficiaries of in terms of sports history. Joe Frazier, his hatred for Ali, having grown for the hurtful things that he said, refused to fight him, refused to give him a shot at the title, even though he was the number one ranked contender. Instead, he fought George Foreman, the Olympic champion. He was destroyed in two rounds. He went down there overconfident and undertrained. In January 1974, January 28th, Ali and Frazier met again in the garden. This time, neither was a champion, and neither was undefeated. <clears throat> it was a 12-round non-title bout, and Ali won the decision handily. It patterned similar to the first fight. Ali came out fast, built up an early lead. Frazier came on in the early rounds, and Ali came back on in the last third. Later that year, Ali would go to Kinshasa, Zaire, Africa, and he would slay the mighty George Foreman in one of the greatest sports upsets in the history of the sport. A 5-1 to one underdog at 32 years of age, Ali goes and regains his crown with an eighth-round knockout of the previously thought of to be indestructible George Foreman. Well, there had to be something else you could do. And there was. After fighting a few tune-up fights in his first year of his new reign as heavyweight champion, it was time to get it on again with Joe Frazier. This time the scene was Manila in the Philippines. The fable thriller in Manila. Now, why do I give you this build-up? Well, because many fights are hyped. The first fight between Ali and Frazier was billed as the fight of the century. No one ever thought that it could live up to that name. It was the first fight where men got multi-million dollar purses, two and a half million dollars each, before taxes, of course. But it lived up to its name and then some. It was the epitome of what a heavyweight fight should be up to that time. Both men at the height of their skills. Now it was Manila, 1975. In order to be seen live in the United States in primetime, the fight had to be early in the day in Manila. Indoors, no air conditioning. Temperature in the arena was over 100 degrees. The humidity level was about 100% making the normal evaporation process whereby athletes cool themselves down when they're engaged in activity virtually ineffective and impossible. Still, they went on. The gloves, unlike the gloves today, did not have closed cell foam padding sealed in plastic under the leather. It was cloth, mat, and roving, all of which became soaked through and through with the humidity, the moisture, and the sweat until they became waterlogged gloves the loft, the padding compressed, splatting off each fighter for 15 rounds. Ali didn't think that Joe Frazier had anything left. He really hadn't looked that well after the defeat against Foreman until he fought uh, Ali in the rematch. But Frazier came to fight, and he had trained hard. First four rounds, Ali built up a lead. Then Frazier began walking him down with a blistering body attack. It wasn't until years later that we found that Ali's hips had developed hematomas and he couldn't move or dance without great pain because of the punishment that Frazier dissed out. This was Frazier's plan, to reduce Ali's legs, to reduce his ability to move away, which he depended upon so very much as part of his defense. By the 10th or 11th round, 
The fight was in the trenches. They were fighting on near even terms. After the ninth, Ali seemed really tired. Now, there was a legend that Ali was about to quit. Well, it isn't all legend. At the end of the ninth or tenth round, Ali did say, I'm not going back out there. This man is crazy. But over the years, that remark has been taken out of contents to mean that Ali was ready to quit at the end of the fight. That wasn't true. We're going to get to that in a second. In the twelfth round, Ali started to come on. The thirteenth round was voted round of the year by Ring Magazine. Ali hit Frazier with such a right cross that it knocked his mouthpiece out 30 rows back, and he really pummeled him that round. Round 14, Ali continued his assault. Had Frazier within a punch or two of going down. As both men went back to their corners at the end of the 14th round, getting ready for the last round, neither of them had really anything left but slaps in them. There were no real punches left. Frazier, unknown to most people, had been blind since the Olympics in one eye. Both eyes were almost completely shut, and he simply could no longer see what Ali was throwing. At this point, Eddie Futch, his manager, had concluded that a victory on points with the fight to go the limit was impossible, that Ali was now ahead, having come back so strong in the last two rounds especially. The only possible path to victory was a knockout. And Futch didn't think Frazier had anything left in him to knock anybody out with. And frankly, neither did Ali, but he was ahead. Now at this point, when you look at certain documentaries from Frazier's kids and his friends, they were saying that Ali was ready to quit. Well, the aforementioned remark about him quitting, I told you, was made after the 10th round. But you'll note that Ali came out for the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th. And as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. If you look at the films of the fight, you will see, as the camera went to both corners between the 14th and 15th round, Frazier was sitting on his stool, spitting out blood, getting a few smelling salts, but no quit in the man, a, a stronger more determined adversary you'd never want to meet. Ali, for his part, was on his stool, his arms splayed out, resting his arms. He was arm-weary after all the punches he had thrown. And Drew Bundini Brown, one of his handlers, holding his trunks away from his waist so that he could breathe deeply and replenish himself with as much oxygen as he can suck out of that stultifying air that they had with 125 degrees in the ring under the lights and 100% humidity. He didn't look like a man who was ready to quit. He looked like a man who was doing as much as he could to rest in that one minute that they get between rounds before he went out to fight the most important round of his life, round 15. For all of the reasons I mentioned, the victory on points impossible, Eddie Futch committed the most humanitarian act there was and stopped the fight. Joe jumped up, wanted to go out, and Frazier sat back down again when Eddie Futch put his hand on his shoulder and told him it was over. Years later, it was said that Joe resented Futch for doing that, but the fact of the matter is, barring some almost unthinkable miracle, there was no way that Frazier could win on a decision, and there was no way that he was going to knock anybody out. The only thing that would have helped Ali perhaps knock Frazier out is the fact that Frazier could no longer see anything. 
this was three of the biggest memories I had, those fights as I was growing up as a young lad. I was in the sixth grade for the first one, and I was in high school for the last one. It was the epitome of what heavyweight fight should be. The second fight, a lot of people overlook because it wasn't the complete, incredible, over-the-top performance that the first and the third fight were. The first fight was incredible. A lot of people have criticized the third fight because Ali wasn't in as good a shape as he probably should have been, and you can tell this by his weight. A year earlier, he had weighed 217 when he fought Foreman. Here he weighed in about 224, 223. He really should have come in at about 220, maybe 219, because he's going to sweat off that weight. But he clearly did not look as svelte as he had looked against Foreman the year earlier. Would it have been different had he come in lighter? We don't know. Was Frazier in great shape? Yes. Was he what he was in 1971? No. Neither was Ali. And to be fair, Frazier also came in 10 pounds heavier than he had in 1971. Ali had come in at 215 in 71, Frazier at 204. Ali comes in at 223 in 75, and Frazier comes in at 214. They were both older, but neither one would take a backward step from the other. Ali would continue to fight after the thriller Manila for several more years, well beyond what he should have. And the thriller Manila was truly the last time that Ali looked like the real Ali. Frazier would also continue to fight a few times, but his career was over, and he knew it, and he retired. Years after they both retired, the toll of the ring wars became apparent. Frazier began to speak more slowly, his voice, his speech thicker, sometimes incoherent. Ali was no longer able to speak at all eventually, Parkinson's having robbed just about everything from him. The sad part about it, both of these men, is they had both been exceptional athletes in their youth. Their minds still knew what was going on, still knew everything around them. Ali still was aware. But the blows they had taken to the head over the years robbed them each of a piece of themselves. In Ali's case, it had robbed him of his, his grace of movement and motor skills. In Frazier's case, it robbed him of his speech to a degree and his motor skills. Frazier would go on to die of pancreatic cancer while living in his gym in Philadelphia. Ali would die a few years later. His suffering from Parkinson's finally over. And we can only hope that they're both in a better place now. Hanging out together, not fighting, but celebrating, looking down at the great memories they left all of us here on Earth. Sports legends like that you will not see the like of again, at least not in my lifetime. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.